And here we stand at the beginning of a year, uh, thinking about what uh, will or might lie ahead. And as believers in Christ, seeking to, to do that with an attitude of faith and not despair, as some may feel. But that leaves us with questions about what it even means to, to face that future in faith. What does it mean to live by faith? When I was a, a seminary student back in the late Middle Ages, uh, one, of the, um, one of the things we would do periodically in our, in our chapel was to have what was called an hour of praise. And in the hour of praise, uh, individual students or professors would stand up and give some brief word of praise to God for the ways in which uh, they had experienced God's goodness recently. Almost every time we had that hour of praise, I think, one of my fellow students, um, not always the same person, but, but one of them almost every time would stand and say something like this, I'm glad that I can live by faith. I'm, I'm studying here at seminary, and, and I have uh, no visible sources of income, but God is providing for me so that I can pay my tuition and study here. And just the other day, I, I went to my mailbox and I opened it, and, and there was, totally out of the blue, a, a, an envelope, a letter with a check for $500. Totally unexpected. Now, in the late Middle Ages, when I was a seminary student at my school, $500 would pay for a semester's tuition. That's how long ago it was. But, but somebody would say, I, 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 I wasn't expecting it, and there it was. I'm so grateful that I can live by faith. When I heard that, part of me, I was ambivalent, part of me wanted to say, hallelujah, praise God for that provision for my fellow student. And another part of me said, what's wrong with me anyway? I, I never go to my mailbox and find checks for $500. And, and I'm studying here at seminary, and um, I'm a married student, and, and, and we're paying the bills because my wife is an RN and is working in the hospital, and, and I'm, I'm doing a, a variety of things like grading Greek papers, uh, for one professor, and, and, and we're getting by like that, but what's wrong with, with me that I'm not living by faith and just trusting God to provide? At some point, I, I realized, you know, not all of God's people could live on the basis of redistributed wealth, because if no one was creating wealth, there'd be no wealth to redistribute. So I thought, well, maybe it's okay to get by on the basis of income earned. And then, and then I realized what, what some of my fellow students were experiencing was, I think, what the Apostle Paul calls the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians 12, where it's, it's one of many manifestations of the Spirit, none of which are designed for everybody. The Spirit shows himself in diverse ways. So, so I began to feel some relief that maybe I wasn't a, such, a, such a schmuck after all. Uh, by, by actually earning income rather than living by faith in the way that some of my fellow students did. But still I realized it, it is a biblical truth, a reality that all of us who are God's people 
are, are indeed called to live by faith. So it set me thinking about what that might look like. And, and if you start trying to think biblically about what living by faith looks like, eventually you're going to have to come to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where the chapter is, is about what it means to live by faith. It's all sort of summed up at, at the beginning of the chapter when the writer says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And, and when you read the chapter as a whole, I think I, we'd summarize it something like this. Living by faith means believing God's promise for the future, God's promise of what he's going to do for us by his grace and power. And, and because we trust his promise for the future, we obey his command in the present. We obey his word now, believing his word about what he's going to do in the future. So as a writer describes there, faith is inherently future-oriented. It's being sure of what we hope for, what is yet to come, and, and having a certainty about what we do not yet see. In that chapter of Hebrews 11, the, the largest amount of space, and this comes as no great shock, is devoted to the patriarch Abraham. And so from verse 8 down to verse 19, it's essentially about Abraham as a paradigm of what it means to live by faith. And four times in that passage, the writer says, by faith, and then describes something about Abraham's experience illustrating four different facets of what it means to live by faith. So I invite you to think with me this morning about what we learn from this, this account of Abraham in, in, what, in terms of what it means to live by faith. First of all, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. And so the writer here tells us that living by faith means, means a, a, a willingness to accept an uncertain future. A willingness to take the next step of obedience in terms of understanding God's will for us without having to know all the things that lie beyond that. God called Abram, whom he later renamed Abraham, called him to leave his, his family behind, and Ur and to Haran, and then on to the land of Canaan. And the writer tells us Abraham obeyed, and, and when God called him to go to a land that God was promised to give him as an inheritance, Abraham obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. Abraham was driving just like most of us men drive wasn't sure where he was going, but he kept on going. Now, how exactly God took Abraham from Ur to Haran and on to the land of Canaan, we don't know. The book of Genesis doesn't fill in the details. The writer doesn't fill in the details here. What, what we do know from what the writer tells us here is how God did not do it. God did not give Abraham a map of, of, of the whole ancient Near East and show him exactly where he was 
He didn't do the ancient Near East equivalent of the GPS. This is your present location. And, and this is how far it will be, and this is where you will turn, and this is how you will go. And, this, and right here, that's the land that I'm going to give you. He didn't do it that way, the writer says. Abraham went, even though he didn't know the details about the ultimate destination. So obviously, the way it happened was that God led Abraham one day at a time. And Abraham took the next step of obedience and doing the will of God, not sure about what would lie beyond that. As, as God's new covenant people, God has promised to us our eternal inheritance in the new heavens and new earth, inaugurated by the return of our Lord, but what lies between here and there, well, we don't know all the details. God hasn't been pleased to tell us all those details. And so like Abraham, we are, as believers in Christ, headed toward our inheritance, the new creation. And, and he calls us to obey him along the way. But we don't always know what lies beyond that next step of obedience, do we? Well, living by faith means I, I can take that next step even if, even though I, I am uncertain about all the repercussions of it. I can trust God to deal with the consequences of my obedience in the next step. We experience that in many ways, don't we? I, it's a distant memory, but I still remember when I was finishing high school and making a choice about what next. I'm, I'm an American-Canadian, so that was back in middle America, state of Indiana. And, and in my case, it meant the next step was going to Purdue University to do a degree in mathematics. Now, in case you're not familiar with Purdue, what you need to know is that Purdue has produced three Super Bowl-winning quarterbacks. If you know that, you, you know the really crucial thing about it. It's also known for things like aeronautical engineering and, and uh, science and agriculture and so on. But Super Bowl quarterbacks are the specialty. Now, for me, that, that next step was the right next step that ultimately led to my studying theology, becoming a pastor, and ultimately a professor of theology. I know, that sounds weird. But it was actually a perfectly good move. But in God's providence, what happened was, while I was in university doing that degree in mathematics, I had the chance to be involved in a small church near the campus with a pastor who, who cared about me and, and who was God's tool to nudge me toward vocational ministry of the word. I didn't know that when I went to do the degree in mathematics. We don't have to know all that lies beyond the next step. We trust God for that. When, when you or I, when we've made a choice to get married, we, we, we made a choice to do what we thought was the right next step, and we certainly did not know all that lay beyond that. That's why marriage vows say things like, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, etc. Because we don't know. But by faith, we can take the next step. When a church appoints a pastor, 
They don't know all that lies beyond it. When the pastor says yes, he doesn't know all that lies beyond that. It's already been mentioned, I, I teach theology at Heritage Seminary in Cambridge. Heritage College and Seminary uh, began in 1993. It was a merger of two schools, one in London, one in Toronto. We were two Baptist schools who had been for several years tossing grenades over the hill at one another. And, um, but things changed in both places and ultimately I'm glad to say I was involved in helping uh, two groups of Baptists to find a way to do it together rather than excuses to perpetuate division. So in 1993, we had a merger to create Heritage College and Seminary. And that was an exciting thing to be involved in, but at the time, those of us who were making it happen did not know all that would lie beyond that. We, on both ends of that merger, there were uncertainties about how our constituencies would accept this new idea. We are convinced, though, it was the right thing to do. So living by faith means we take that next step, even though we don't know in advance all that lies beyond it. And since I'm still gainfully employed there, obviously God has been at work to make the merger um, more successful than some people predicted it would be. So living by faith means what, whatever the decisions you need to make in the immediate future, trusting God means you can, you can make those decisions even though you don't know in advance all that lies beyond it. But there's more to it. In, in verses 9 and 10, the writer says, By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so the second thing the writer wants us to know is that living by faith means we can we can obey God patiently waiting for him to fulfill his plan. We go on obeying even when we don't see the fulfillment of what we're confident God is going to do. In Abraham's case, God had said to him, to you personally and to your offspring, I'm going to give all this land as, as a permanent inheritance. And so Abraham lived in the land along with Isaac and Jacob, but he never owned it. The writer says he, he lived in the land in, in tents, lived like a stranger, like an alien, even, even though this was the land that God had promised, but, but Abraham never owned it in his lifetime. Now personally, I, I think one of the things one of the ideas that God was beginning to put in Abraham's head was the whole idea of resurrection. So that ultimately in the end, in the new heavens and new earth, Abraham and all his believing offspring will inherit the new creation. More than what was initially promised. Inclusive of that, but far beyond it. But Abraham didn't see that. Writer says he only looked forward to it. He... He was looking forward to the time when God would work out his purpose. But Abraham had to obey throughout his lifetime without seeing the fulfillment of that plan. 
God's people throughout the ages have to learn and relearn that truth. That it's God who sets the timetable for fulfilling his purposes. We don't set it for him. At the end of the 18th century, Baptists in England sent out a man named William Carey to go to India to take the gospel to the people of India. Carey was convinced they needed to do that in obedience to the commission that Christ gave to his people. Not everybody among his fellow Baptists in England thought they ought to do that. In fact, when he suggested it at one meeting of pastors, he was told, sit down, young man, God will take care of that. You don't need to worry about it. Carey was convinced that this needed to happen. And ultimately, they formed a missionary society and they sent Carey and a few others off to India. And so they got there. And, and Carey began to learn the language, began to speak of Christ, and nobody responded. In fact, it was about five years before they actually had any converts who responded to the gospel. But, but Carey was an obedient disciple of Christ, and he was a gifted linguist. And during those years when no one was responding, he was translating the Bible into Bengali, the language of the people. So when God did begin raising up a church there in India among the Bengali-speaking people, they had at least parts of the scripture in their own language to read and to teach. Now, if I had been writing the script, I would have vindicated Carrie immediately. And, and I would have saved people immediately, brought them to faith, created a church, so Kerry could send news back to England and say, see, I was right. But God didn't ask me to write the script. God wrote the script. And Kerry, a man of faith, gave God the chance to write the script and do it in his own time. On a smaller scale, I learned that back in my first pastoral ministry. That was, that was back at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Bloomington, Indiana. Bloomington is the, uh, the home of the main campus of Indiana University. I, I had this vision for our church having significant ministry to the university community. One of the problems was our church property was a few miles away from the campus and that created some difficulties, but we had some people from the university. But, but the, the ministry didn't multiply in all the ways that I had hoped it would. And yet I knew, I knew that there, were, there was a church with its building very near the campus that had been exploding in growth. They had three morning services, people standing at the walls and sitting on the floors. All kinds of those people that I wanted to reach out to. And... I, I became a good friend with Dave Ferris, senior pastor of that church. And, oh, by the way, that was a Presbyterian church. Mine was a Baptist church, and I kind of thought God should do that in a Baptist church, not a Presbyterian church. But, again, again, God didn't ask me how to do it. And um, Dave and I became really good friends. In fact, my best friends among pastors in Bloomington were, uh, were two, Dave and another Presbyterian. And 
So one day I said, look, Dave, I, I know that prior to about three years ago, the church wasn't exploding in growth like this. I mean, what changed? What happened? And he said, honestly, Stan, nothing was dramatically different about me, about me as a preacher, about me as a pastor, as a leader. God just showed up in a powerful way. God began doing some, some really great things. All glory to God. He did it in his own time and in his own way. And that was, a, that was both an encouragement and a rebuke to me. It was a rebuke to me for thinking, I gotta find the silver bullet. I gotta find the magic formula here. And it was an encouragement to recognize God calls us to obey him faithfully as individuals, as a congregation. We don't set the timetable. And so we go on, faithfully obeying God, communicating the gospel, building up one another, reaching out to the world around us, and we don't know what God's timing is. That's God's choice, not ours. But there's more. At verse 11, the writer says, And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Here the writer makes the point that living by faith means believing that God can do what's humanly impossible. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, it was God's promise to them that he would provide for them a son whom they named Isaac and that would be the son who would inherit God's covenant promise and the writer reminds us about what the story of Genesis tells us Sarah was sterile unable to have children she was about 90 years old Abraham was close to 100 and, and the, in fact, the writer describes him as he is good as dead. That's, uh, that's not terribly flattering, but that was the reality about Abraham. The fact is, Abraham and Sarah were not prospects for the fertility clinic. Humanly speaking, there was simply no way that they together were going to generate a son. But God promised, and God delivered on that promise and Sarah delivered a son there was, there was simply no way that it could happen in terms of any of the normal patterns of life in this world it was humanly impossible but God promised and by faith they believed that God could do what was humanly simply not, not on the radar screen at all and God did it. So living by faith means we, we don't limit what God can do. Now we do need to be careful when we think about the Abraham story and, we draw, and when we try to draw a line from that story to our story, don't we? God had given a very specific and clear promise to Abraham and Sarah about what he was going to do. 
So faith means believing what God in fact has promised. It doesn't mean creating promises for God to give us. So living by faith doesn't mean I, I sort of work up my faith to a point where I manipulate God and force him to do something that I want. We need to be careful about that. But at the very least, if, if we have faith in the God who really is powerful, then, then we can believe that we, we have no business setting limits as to what we can ask him to do. There's no disease that God can't heal. There's no wandering sinner in your family or mine whom God can't draw to faith in Christ. And so we must not set limits. Can God awaken a nation like Canada? Of course God can. God's power is not limited. Can God call a nation back from some of its moral insanity? God can do that. Can God reverse the trend of, of a denomination that's in decline? Of course God can. Can God act powerfully in the world to overthrow evil in whatever form it may take? ISIS, ISIL, or whatever name you want to use for it, for example. Can God change all that? If we live by faith, then we believe God can. And so we don't set limits on what we might ask God to do. And yet, in my experience, very often it is the case that when believers meet to pray, our, our focus often is very narrow and very local, and, and, and it just doesn't ask God to do really big things. That needs to change. If, if you read, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul exhorts Timothy to teach the church there to pray, not just for their own little needs, but to pray for the rulers over them in the Roman Empire, to ask God to providentially be at work through those rulers to create a climate of peace in which the gospel can advance. How often do we actually pray for the people who have great power in this world? How often do we pray that God, in fact, will reverse the forces of evil. People of faith believe God can do that, and therefore, there's good reason to ask him to. So, living by faith, the writer tells us, means we're, we're willing to obey God, even though we don't know what with certainty what lies beyond that. And we're willing to obey God in the present, waiting patiently for him to fulfill his purpose. And we believe God can do what's humanly impossible to achieve that purpose. And then there's one more thing the writer tells us. Down to verse 17. The fourth time that he says, by faith. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. 
He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. And so the final point that the, that the writer makes from the life of Abraham is that living by faith means obeying God even when the results seem disastrous. The story is found back in Genesis 22, well-known story. Difficult story in a variety of ways. God has miraculously provided Isaac, as the writer's already talked about, now God says to Abraham, when Isaac is a young man, not yet married, I want you to take Isaac, your uniquely given, miraculously conceived son, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice on an altar where I take you. Now, when you and I read this story, Probably the thing that jolts us the most about it is the whole idea that God would actually ask Abraham to kill his son. That's, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing our God would do. And it's not the sort of thing that our God would normally do. The story is not given there as a kind of paradigm saying, fathers, take your firstborn son and kill them. It's a one-off. It's, it's unusual. It's, this is, there's nothing typical or normal about it. And, and, and we wonder about how, how God could do that. But, but the problem that the writer focuses on is not how could God command a crazy thing like that. The problem is that God's promise and God's command are, are in lethal conflict here. He promised that it would be through Isaac that Abraham's offspring that would inherit the covenant promise would be named. And Isaac is not yet married, has no son. He has no line through which the promise can be fulfilled. It would appear that there's no way that God can keep his promise if Abraham obeys God's command. But Abraham was willing to obey God's command. And the writer tells us Abraham reasoned, if God has to raise him from the dead, he will do it to keep his promise. And so Abraham radically obeyed. Now, if you know the story, you know that God stepped in at the last moment, provided a ram off, off in the bushes uh, to take the place of Isaac. And so Abraham did not actually have to go through with it, but Abraham did everything that was required to obey God's command. Even when it appeared the results would be disastrous. And for you and me, sometimes, obeying what we understand to be God's will, doing what is right, may appear to bring some very negative consequences. But faith means we trust God to deal with those consequences of obedience. So it means, for example, if in 2016 you're, you're told to do something at work 
that, that you know violates God's will. You know is illegal or immoral. You have to obey God. Well, what if obeying God means you're going to lose your job? That's living by faith. Trusting God to deal with the consequences of obedience. You may just be looking for a job and, and you know that taking a particular job would force you to violate your conscience. And so you have to say no and wait for God to provide another option. I know as, as someone who's involved in vocational ministry of God's word, sometimes I recognize that teaching what God's word appears to clearly say is going to produce some negative fallout. But faith means trusting God to deal with the consequences of my obedience. And so you see, it, it really is possible to live by faith as, as the writer reminds us that Abraham demonstrated. It, it means I, I can move forward and take the next right step even if I don't know all that lies beyond it. It means I can, I can go on serving God while I patiently wait for God to, to bring about the good in my life that I'm trusting him for. It means I, I know, I believe that God can do what, what's humanly impossible to make that happen. And, and it means my task is to obey God's word, God's commands as I understand them. And even if the consequences do not look good. Now, I can imagine what some perceptive person here this morning is thinking. That was Abraham. Abraham appeared to God in visible form. Abraham spoke to God directly in some kind of voice. God encountered Abraham in very direct ways that frankly are foreign to my experience. It would have been a whole lot easier for Abraham to obey God because of all the miraculous things he saw. And I understand that. But it's also true that, that Abraham saw very little fulfillment of the things that God had promised. You and I stand here where we are in history and, and we look back on all that God has done. We just celebrated at Christmas God keeping his promise to provide Messiah. God poured out the Spirit as he had promised. We can look back on, on all that God has done to fulfill his purposes, and all we wait for is for the final curtain at the second coming. So in some ways, we can see a whole lot more fulfillment than Abraham did. It might be easier for us to live by faith. But in reality, what we have to remember is that the, the hero of the story in Abraham's life and in Scripture as a whole is God. The hero is not Abraham, the hero is God who was at work by his grace to enable Abraham to live by faith. The same God who is alive and well today, dwelling in his people by his spirit, and he will enable us to live by faith as well. In 2016, and 
however many more years we have, you can count on that. Let's pray. Let's pause now in a moment of silent prayer. And I, I invite you to think about what, what you know lies ahead for you in this year, what might lie ahead for you in this year. And ask God to help you live by faith in those circumstances. Gracious Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the powerful and faithful God. You kept your promise to provide Messiah who lived and died and rose again for us. In fulfillment of your promise, you poured out the Spirit at Pentecost who now empowers your people to live for you. You have shown yourself faithful in our experience in many ways. And so, Lord, we ask you to make us your faithful people. May your grace that appeared in Christ for our salvation, for the salvation of all, continue now to work powerfully in us, enabling us to live in faith and obedience in this present evil age, as we await our blessed hope 